The morning psalm for today is um, 111, and then in your pew Bibles, it's page 562. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed by the faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The word of the Lord. At this time, I don't know, Tom, you want to come and include us in the conversation you've been having and are having with... There you go. We were out at Carnation yesterday listening to my brother's band play. And um, Nathan, do you remember what, what you told me? It was... Uh, it was loud, but it was worth it. So I thought that was... I sent him a note, and uh, he was very excited to hear that. But that isn't today's discussion. The um, One thing that uh, I always thought when, when people were telling me about living life with God as a part of it is think of it like dancing. And Nathan has never seen Suzanne and I ballroom dance, but it's something that we used to do. And it's a lot of fun. Ballroom dancing, have you ever heard of that, Nathan? Like waltzing and things like that. Well, it's a lot of fun. And it's it's dancing where there's, there's two people and one person leads and one person follows that lead. And it's not like the, the things you saw in, in judo where you one person does something and the other person has no idea what they're going to do and you just have to respond to it. Dancing is you know what the other person's going to do and you respond to that. And so I was writing down some ideas of how I thought our life with God is like dancing and the things that, um, the way that's important, the way that's good. So the one thing is that, and you understand this because you've told me before that you would like to you would like me to build you a small chapel. And do you remember why you wanted me to build you a small chapel? So I could have a little time by myself. Yeah, and you were telling me that you felt that praying to God was like what? Food and water. It was like food and water. So you wanted me to build you a small chapel because you wanted to spend time alone because being with God is like getting food and water. Which, by the way, is a very mature thing for someone with a six-and-a-half-year-old head to think. 
I mean, I'm impressed. Jesus said that too, by the way. So the answer is still Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but it also means you've been paying attention. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so how is God? How is li living life with God like? How is it like having a close game? You stay close so that you can feel every little nudge. Because he'll nudge you in the ways that he would like you to go. You get used to the types of things God would want you to do. So he's not going to go and spin you off in some weird direction and have you hit the wall and fall over. He, you know the types of things he's going to have you do. You get used to asking for guidance. So asking God, I'm not sure if I should do this or I should do that. What do you think? That's, that's a really important thing to be able to ask. And you get, getting used to asking that is, is a healthy thing. It's a good thing. And getting gentle corrections when you do something wrong. You know, when you're dancing closely to somebody, if you misstep, if you miss a step, the person who's leading gives you a gentle nudge this way, and you get back on track where you ought to be. And finally, living with God is like having a close dance. It's because you can have fun because you know that you're not alone. There's someone in there with you. So those are the things I always remembered. Sound good? Make sense? <laughs> You'll think about it and get back to us, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We had fun at the We had fun last night. Okay, let's pray. Dear God, Dear God, thank you for living close to us. Thank you for living close to us. Thank you for giving us a life. Where we can be close to you. Where we can be close to you. Please nudge us. Please nudge us. In the way you would like us to go. In the way you would like us to go. Because we love you, Lord. Because we love you, Lord. And we know you love us. And we know you love us. Amen. Our middle song uh, this morning is uh, God of Grace and God of Glory, verses 1, 3, and 4. Let's remain seated and sing together.
That's a very powerful hymn. And uh, the focus this morning is on wisdom. And uh, the wisdom that uh, Solomon prayed for and so forth. Um, I'm a, most of the time I preach from the lectionary. And the lectionary has all these passages. And you'll notice that there are, there, every week there are four passages that across the church we are reading together. An Old Testament passage, a morning psalm, uh, the gospel lesson, and an epistle lesson. And I try to, if we, uh, we read at least two, usually the morning psalm and then the passage that I'm going to be mainly preaching, preaching from, and then I try to incorporate the other passages within the liturgy so that we have some kind of experience of these four passages. Uh, but also sometimes there's a real distinct theme that ties these together. And wisdom is really that theme uh, that ties these various passages together uh, this morning. And uh, so we had the epistle lesson. By the way, uh, it's really good to have Abby as our our liturgist this morning. This is the last time that she is going to be with us before she heads off to, to college. And we wish her well, and it will be our prayer. As they are going down to this Christian college, and as I say, suffering for Jesus, at the beach at Santa Barbara, she said, <laughs> somebody's got to do it. You know, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour. Oh, Lord. Anyway. It's great, and uh, we really appreciate, and, we'll, and our prayers will be with you, Abby. Uh, and you will need wisdom. I think we all do. But before we read this passage, and what I was saying in terms of the lectionary, the lectionary is a very powerful tool, and it tries to incorporate the various um, breadth of the scripture. Over the church year, we try to have a good breadth and focus that all the various parts of Scripture together, but also as the church. Uh, so the positive that I see in this lesson this morning is that the passages were, were chosen to get at the real message for us today. And that's not always easy to do in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it's obscured by other things by things that are going on that would scratch your head, you'd have trouble with, and you might get tied up in knots in. So actually, the story about David and Solomon and the transfer of power and everything, the lectionary passage is a sanitized version, I would say, of the real story. And uh, it's good in that it gets at the heart of the message that we can get from that passage. The bad side of that is we can get a, a misplaced and misunderstanding of, of um, God's word for us. And when people have real hard questions about the Bible, we're not able to necessarily answer that and understand that, you know what? The truth is messy. So my commentary is a little bit of a sermon this morning on this passage and the whole passage because this passage talks about how David, you know, he was on his deathbed and, and David uh, uh, was buried with his ancestors and he reigned in, in, in good stead and he was a, a good king and he followed God and then he transferred this, uh, the throne to Solomon uh, 
and then it talks about how Solomon loved the Lord and how good he was, and then it tells the story that we're going to be focusing on about how he, he had a, a dream, a vision, if you will, of God at the outset of this ministry, and basically it's an Aladdin story. You know, you get wishes at the beginning, and that's what it is. He gets one wish, and he chooses wisely. He chooses wisdom instead of wealth and power and, and all the things that you'd think a person would ask for in that kind of position. But what it leaves out, the lectionary passage, is the real messy truth, which is that King, King Solomon was actually, I mean, the, it, it's messy. The Old Testament is messy. It's a mixture of real human brokenness and sin, and in the midst of that, the revealing of God and God's will. And it can be real mixed up and hard for us to understand. You know, King Solomon was the product of a scandalous liaison between King David and, and a servant of his, a commander of his, uh, his wife Bathsheba, who is actually the mom of Solomon. And, uh, and actually, it was more than just a scandalous affair. David, to cover up that fare, had, uh, had Uriah, the, uh, the, his commander, killed on the battlefield so he could kind of cover all this up. So murder and, and scandalous, uh, an affair, and, 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 and then also King David on his deathbed. We don't read this part. The deathbed is a mixture of some wonderful religious advice and a political advice which included political assassinations in an effort to consolidate his power and to exact revenge. Now, you go, how is that part of God's will? How, how does this work? You know, how does that come together? And King Solomon, actually as virtuous as we may think he is, is a mixture and later in his life, you know, th this is a wonderful passage, and we should learn from it. But Solomon didn't necessarily learn from it. Because um, King Solomon is kind of a cautionary tale. Because the very things that he didn't ask for were the things that he ended up pursuing in his life. Power, wealth, extravagance, sex, he had something like 650 wives and another 400 concubines. So he's a busy man. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, again, it did not lead him in the way. And as a result, it's kind of a tragedy and a tragic figure. So how do we say that this is God's word for us? You know, how do we deal with that? How do we say that this is God's will, this is God's word for us? First thing is we must understand the context. And we must begin that these writers, and it's important to point out, were real people living in real places at real times. And with that, must be careful. They were real people with real problems and real sin and real brokenness. And it's in the midst of that that we learn and see and, and begin to have a, a revealing 
of God's word and God's truth. But that's not always easy. It's pretty messy. One pastor and author writes, when people charge in with great insistence that this is God's word, all the while neglecting the very real humanity of these books or these writings, they can inadvertently rob these writings of their real sacred power. When we try to sanitize things to get at the truth, that's when we rob the Bible of its real power. Because the real power is found in and through the messiness and in and through the real humanness and brokenness of these authors and these people. You know, the, the, our, scripture, our scripture, our sacred writings are not sanitized versions of history, like other histories that uphold these people who are always right and always doing good things. Ours is a story of grace that's unfolding that says God meets us in the mess and even risks his glory being messed up and his name being mess up, messed up and his name being misunderstood and his will being misunderstood. You know, uh, because of that, people will ask you, really, this is God's word? Uh, you know, uh, really, God said, kill all the women and children? Really, God said that? That's what they said. But that was the messiness and their understanding. So when we begin with this, we begin in the wrong place when we start to insist on the divinity and things to be sanitized. We begin in the right place when we embrace that humanity because then we really realize the power of grace and what is going on here. You start with the human, the brokenness of humanity, the messiness of our world, and through that, God works. We best direct our energies to understand why these people wrote these books and these poems and these stories and accounts so that whatever divine we find in it we find that divine through the human, not around it, in it and through it. Often, especially when people come to a particular strange or gruesome passage, they, they will say, why did God say this? The problem with this question is that it will leave you tied up in all kinds of knots. It's not the right place to start. The better place to start is the reality of our broken world and that God enters it and reveals. And revelation and redemption is a messy business. Acknowledging that, embracing that. The better question for us when we come upon messiness is to say, why did these people find it important to tell this story? What was it that moved them to record these words? What was happening in the world at that time? And then, what does this passage and story and poem or verse or book tell us about how people understood who they were and who God is at that time? And what is this story unfolding? So there's two ways to, for us to always remember we need to remember that this is an unfolding message and an unfolding truth that is finally realized in the person of Jesus Christ. 
God's perfect revelation. The Word made flesh. The perfect Word. When we talk about wisdom here, it's really revealed in the wisdom of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. We can reflect on, and the church has always looked backwards as well as forwards into this unfolding story, but looked backwards because we know Jesus Christ and we reflect on the Old Testament in light of the living word and the wisdom of God. And so we have it uh, better and easier. And so um, anyway, the other thing I wanted to, to, to mention in that is... It, when we deal with things in a, almost in a literal fashion, we can really get tied up in knots or just deny it altogether and move away from it and just take the parts that are nice and sanitized. Okay. I was uh, with the Taylors at uh, the Gilbert and Sullivan production of uh, Pirates of Penzance a few weeks ago. It was awesome and a lot of fun. And... Uh, Price nudged me during the production, and he said, hey, look at your program, and he showed me. There's a disclaimer uh, in the front, uh, in the program, about the Pirates of the Penzance and about Gilbert and Sullivan's works. And we looked at each other, and there was a twinkle, and we had a little conversation about how, you know what, we also need this kind of disclaimer when we're handling God's word. And it, it, it goes like this. The, here's the disclaimer. See if you can figure out how it might apply to this Old Testament passage. It says, notice to the audience members, attempts at a, any detailed literal analysis of any of Gilbert and Sullivan operas will only upset you and annoy your friends and others seated near you. Okay? So um, just... Cross out Gilbert and Sullivan opera and put in Old Testament passages. Or God's word is real and messy. And if you take it literally and out of context, it will only annoy you and those around you. Okay? So that's, that's my preface this morning to our reading. Our Old Testament passage, the sanitized version, is 1 Kings 2, 10 through 12, and 3, 3 through 14. It's found on page 304 in your pew Bibles in the Old Testament uh, portion. Then David slept with his ancestor, ancestors and was buried in the city of David. The time that uh, David reigned over Israel was 40 years, and he reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat at the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Leaves out all the other stuff. Okay. Then it skips to the passage uh, that really focuses on Solomon now. Solomon loved the Lord, and wa uh, walking in the statutes of his father David, only he sacrificed and offered incenses at the high places. The king went to uh, Gibeon, to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. And Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings at that altar. At uh, Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and then God said, Ask what I should give you, 
And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and in righteousness and in the uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Although I'm, I am only a, a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of people whom you, you have chosen, a great people, so numerous that they can be, uh, can't be, cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding of mind or wisdom to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourselves understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you will arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this passage of scripture. May we be guided. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the Reverend Tim Vagas, he is a pastor of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He, he told this little story. He said, it was and perhaps still is the most perfect prayer I ever heard. And it came out of the mouth of a six-year-old boy. His mother told me about it soon after it had happened. They were at a local swimming pool and her son was standing at the deep end, his toes curled over the edge, still unsure of himself in the water. He stood there for what seemed like a very long time. Hesitating, meditating, palpitating. And just when it seemed like he was going to back away from the edge, he looked up to the sky and put his hands together and said, Oh Lord, give me skills or give me gills. Great prayer. Give me skills or give me gills. And then he jumped in. Give me skills or give me gills. That pretty much covers all the bases, doesn't it? Oh Lord, give me what I need to overcome what I'm facing. But if you won't do that, give me what I need to endure it. Give me skills or give me gills. In his book, Hustling God, Craig Barnes, the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote this about the Christian life. Your calling is not primarily to accomplish something, but to serve God 
who will always lead you to places where you're in over your head. Barnes is reminding us that God has a habit of top, tossing us into the deep end of life. And then you need to pray. Lord, give me gills. Give me skills or give me gills. Our reading from Kings finds Solomon in over his head. His father has died. He is now the head of his family. He is grieving. He is afraid. He is carrying a heavy load. He no longer is swimming in the safety of the shallow end of his childhood. In the safety of the palace. Those always waiting on him. With one swift toss, Solomon is headed into the deep end. And so, he has a vision of God. And he's given a wish. He's given, God says, what do you want? And he basically says, I need wisdom. Which means, I, give me skills or give me gills. At this innocent time in Solomon's life, he is inviting the Almighty to rule over him. And this is a wonderful prayer. There's a couple things about it, but it focuses down to one. But the first thing I wanted to mention is that it is a prayer of praise and gratitude. Solomon remembers the graciousness and the kindness of a loving God. Walter uh, Brueggemann wrote, Solomon sets himself in the history of Yahweh with his people. The context of prayer is a recital of that long history of graciousness which reshapes and redefines this moment of prayer. In gratitude, he realizes that he's in this place and he's being given this high honor and this high responsibility and he didn't bring himself there. God did. And God has a history of graciousness to which he needs to be grateful. Gratefulness and praise, if it is our prayer, is life that is lived to the fullest when we remember that God is in charge. Our praise reaches God's heart as we reach out in, in availability to him. True praise goes to him for who he is, not because of what he gives us materially. He must be the object of our adoration, our reverence, and our awe. Praise glorifies God. Richard Lee wrote this, Oh, for a heart that is fixed on God no matter what happens. Oh, for a devotion to him that is steadfast. Our lips, or, or for lips that will praise him and his unchanging love and his faithfulness. Through all the, though all the world crumbles around our feet, this is the praise that pleases the Father and brings glory to his name. So this, this prayer was first of gratitude. Secondly, it was a prayer of submission. Honest submission understands where life and power originate. 
this prayer waits on God. Solomon solicits God's power and submits to it. In short, wisdom of gratitude and praise and submission is wisdom is based in humility. The Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and asks him what he wants. Because it's a dream and because there's no one else listening in or looking on, Solomon is able to truly unburden his heart to God and the humility of his response was the origin of wisdom. King Solomon is still known today for his wisdom. If you were to ask King Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, we all know what that means. He's known today for his wisdom, for his understanding mind, which is, I think, something of a shame. For unless we know how Solomon acquired that wisdom, you might think that he was born with it. But we know differently from this story. It was a gift. The only thing Solomon knew was that he didn't know anything about being king. And come to find out that was the only thing he needed to know. That he didn't know anything to be king was what he needed to know. If Barnes is right, and God is constantly leading us into places where we are in way over our heads, then this story about Solomon is an important one. It means we don't have to be tied up in knots. We can relax. Or if not relax, then it means that we can at least stop pretending that we have everything under control. It means we can stop wasting our time and energy on our high places pretending to be something or someone we're not. It means we might as well stop running away from God because God is going to find us anyway. And it means that, that when we realize all that we cannot do, we are in the perfect position. When we embrace that in humility, we're in the perfect position to discover all that God can do in and through our lives. It means that if we cannot avoid the challenge set before us, if we're headed into the deep end sooner or later, one way or the other, we should ask God for what we need to overcome it or what we need to endure it. We should boldly pray for skills or for gills, confident that God always gives us one or the other.